So, uh, souls on fire. Let's think about that a little bit. What would it look like to have an entire group of people with the presence of God so powerfully in their midst that there was this fire? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Suppose you could live with a group of people who have been so gloriously delivered, so miraculously delivered, and God's presence moves down right into their middle, and they see it and feel it and experience it every day, every moment of the day. Well, there are accounts in history where this has happened. And we'll look at one of those today. Please turn your Bibles to Exodus 20. I, uh, I don't know about you or whether some of you have been reading along as we read. For years, I would read through these portions of Scripture and be a little alarmed at how little I cared. So what is this? I mean, what are these rules here? So if you have an ox, how many of you have an ox? Um, one, a few possibilities, but no one has an ox here, huh? Well, okay, so if you, if you had an ox, imagine you had an ox, and you know it was a mean ox, and he gored somebody. How about going one better? If you have a dog, and you know he bites Hmm. And he comes and, and somebody, uh, somebody comes to your house, and uh, I'm speaking to myself here, you know, I do have a dog, and he can be a little vicious, 14 pounds of hate. Um, but you, have, you have this uh, dog, and suppose the dog had a reputation for biting, and the owner has been informed about this and has failed to keep it under control. And if the dog bites someone, kills him, ox scores somebody and kills him, the ox has to be stoned, and the owner should also be put to death. Huh. Yeah. Ooh. So if you come to my house and Theo bites you, I give you permission to bite me back or whatever. <laughs> so, so what do these, what do this, these passages have to do? What are they? Why are they here? And remember, I began this by talking about the presence of God. And these are a group of people who have just been miraculously delivered. They've been slaves all their life. They've suffered a great deal. They've been repressed all their lives. And suddenly they're delivered. And and not only are they delivered, they see their repressors being destroyed. Think about what the plagues did to Egypt devastated the land. No crops, nothing left. And at the very end, Pharaoh's army, the vaunted army of Egypt, goes out into the middle of the Red Sea that you've just walked through on dry ground, and suddenly the army's gone. And, and you're on the other side, and this pillar of fire at night and a cloud of, a pillar of smoke by day leads you. And you are in the presence of God. You're there. He's there. He's burning there. We have a large portion that we're supposed to look at, so I'm going to make it even larger and and back up to chapter 19 because I think there is a... a, Well, let me just say something about reading these passages. 
sometimes when you read them in a little different, in more modern language, it does make a difference. Now, it, I, I'm not against, like, the King James. I think there is something poetic and grand about some of that. But in, in these kind of passages, sometimes getting a different perspective helps. And in, in chapter 19, we'll begin there. I'm going to read uh, from verses 5 and 6. It says this. Well, well, just exactly two months, we'll begin at verse 1. Exactly two months after Israel, the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Like, think about the comfort in that passage. I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I care about you. You know, now if you will obey me and keep my commandment, covenant, sorry, let me start again. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. So think about what God is telling Moses here to tell the people. Like, look, I, I care about you. And in the scandal of selectivity, I've chosen you. How can we figure out how God chose the Israelites? We don't. We don't know, but he did. He chose them. They're going to be his seed to convey his goodness into all the earth. And, and that, uh, that little phrase, for all the earth is mine, is really powerful. Because he's saying, I had the chance to select anyone in the world that I could have. I chose you. Now he extends that to all humanity but I chose you. And so, and then he goes into, Moses is there uh, in chapter 20. Uh, let's just think a little bit. What is in chapter 20 that you know? You know, I could have preached a series of 10 messages on the 10 commandments, right? What's the big deal? We know them, or many of us know much about them, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, so, so the next few chapters are these rules. Why are they here? Why are they here, located here? Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting a word. God is speaking to Moses. And then Moses is conveying it to his people. And so Moses, it, it's kind of in stages. Moses comes down and tells the people these rules. And, and they are uh, some really interesting things that, that God tells them. Uh, including the ox or the dog. If, if you have an animal and you know that animal can kill people, and you allow it to kill someone, you have to give your life for that. And uh, here, here are a couple more. You must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were once foreigners in a land. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, what is here? Okay, so I just, I want to back up now and say what, three pieces that I think are in chapters 20 to 30, 31 here. Uh, and first of all, 
this is about the presence of God. This is about God being active, God being alive, present, souls on fire among his people. Right here. He's right here among his people. So the presence of God in his commandments. How is God in this commandment about the ox? How is God in all these little commandments? And then I want to look at the presence of God in his place. A large portion of this is about the tabernacle. And you can look, why does it matter whether it's 15 inches or 15 foot or how many layers it's thick? Or, and and uh, in another lifetime, I was in a, a class on Old Testament, and I actually built a, moderate, a model tabernacle. It's still hanging at SMBI, or was, last time I was there. And I simply used this passage from Exodus, and I could build a scale model tabernacle using this passage. Actually, it's something you should do with your children sometime. Build a scale model tabernacle, take a piece of plywood, and build it on there. Sew the claw. I'm giving these uh, people ideas. We should have a contest. No, no, not contest. Uh, just do it. I mean, there, so the presence of God in his place. The presence of God in his commandments. The presence of God in his place. And the third thing I want to look at is God keeps coming back to the thing of covenant. The presence of God in his covenant. So let's just, let's just dive in and think about the presence of God in his commandments. So all these commandments, the Ten Commandments, but it doesn't stop there. We have kind of focused on the Ten. It's much bigger than the Ten. The Ten kind of encapsulate all of them, but then he goes on to expand them. In uh, chapter 20, verses 18 to 22, it says, All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet. This right after the Ten Commandments are given, surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us, and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us, or we will die. Moses responded to the people, Don't be afraid, for God has come to test you, so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. Then the Lord told Moses, This is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken from heaven. And then he goes on, and it's rule after rule. And I think that as we look at some of these, and we'll look at just a couple of them, um, first of all, the case of the mean ox. I, 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 when I read that, in, particularly in this translation, it just stood out to me. This, this, everybody knows you have a bad bull, a mad bull. And people are walking through the area, and the bull rages on the other side of a one-strand barbed wire. In fact, uh, Narita and I have a little experience with mad bulls. Um, when we lived in Martinsburg, we had a neighbor who raised rodeo bulls. And he, um, he did not, he, he didn't have good fence and he didn't care. And these things would get out regularly and get hit on, they got hit on the road. So um, one day, uh, one morning, one night, we heard something outside. Our dog barked. We heard something outside. I went out, and here are three, uh, two oxen, two steers, and a cow in our potato patch. So I pen them up, and uh, the next morning I go to all the neighbors, and no one seems to know. Oh, they said, that's, that's, uh, what was their last names? Jack was his first name. I cannot think of his last name. Oh, that's theirs. And, uh, and I could not find the owner. So I went to the house where I thought, knocked. nobody came to the door. And I left a message. And then I called into the sheriff's department. And the police, the sheriff said, oh, we know whose they are. 
they'll be right, they'll be in touch with you in a few, in a few minutes. And about two minutes later, my phone rings, and, and it was them, <laughs> and they were mad. And they, they, uh, they said, what are you, some kind of person moving in from Columbus? No. And they said, well, this is not some big city. Why does it bother you if my cows are out? I said, well, this is not the Wild West either. That was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> okay, so, but everybody knew. And, and actually, the law had said that if their cows get out again, they're going to go be put in. The old man was actually put in jail for having his cows get out because there was da- they were dangerous. And the law understood there had to be justice. They, uh, the, three of those rodeo bulls got hit on, on the road. Uh, hitting a rodeo bull brings you to an abrupt stop. Um, just, okay, so wh- what's the point? Why, ca- why make rules that, that pertain to that? It's something, so beyond, beyond the practicality of the rule, think about, think about these, these things as precepts that God lays out. Behind that is our principles, bigger principles. You have to be aware that if your cows get out, they'll eat the, the neighbor's potatoes. They, they, they just wiped out our potato patch. By the way, we have another neighbor who lived on the other side, and he said, you better not let them get step one foot on my property because it's happened already, and I shot him. And I hung him up and butchered him, called him, paid him so much a pound for the meat. Um, so we did live in the Wild West, okay? So, but that's the point. Okay? So it's protection. So behind, the, behind that precept of having, being careful about that ox is a principle that God, that that there is, we're supposed to respect our neighbors well enough. But beyond that is something even bigger, and it's about the person of God. This tells us, this, this commandment about the ox tells us something about the kind, of, the kind of person, something about the personhood of God. That God cares deeply. That, that life is sacred. And that if you take life, there has to be a price to pay for it. And so this, this shows us something about God is justice. The second kind of, uh, I, I already read part of the second one, uh, in chapter 22, verses 21 to 27. And you should follow along if you can here. You must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way, and they cry out to me. And I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will blaze against you. And I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. Like this is God speaking. Saying, look, if you people, if you exploit those people who, who can't um, respond, who aren't on your level, at least you perceive them to be. That's why caring for people who homeless, caring for people who are at a different place in life than we are, caring for widows and orphans. In James it says, um, true religion is this. True, uh, true religion is this, to, to love, to give to the widows and the fatherless. It's because they can't give back. So if, if you can only give to people who give back to you, you're no different then you're not a true religious person because that's what people do to get payback. But if you give to people who can't give back to you, that shows you something about who you are and shows that you actually love people because they're created in the image of God. And could we ever give back to God 
everything he's given us. No. So this, when, we, when we exploit widows and orphans or those in different places in life, or foreigners or migrants or immigrants or anything like that, if we sput and exploit them, you know what we're doing? We're saying they're not made in the same image. They're not created in the same image of God as I'm created. I'm better than they are. And God is not like that. So when you trace that back and you think about what does this teach us about the person of God, it means that he cares deeply about humanity, whoever they are. It doesn't matter whether you're a Yoder or a Miller or a Smith or a, you know, some other name. It, it, it really doesn't matter. He cares about each person, from the rich to the poor. And he cares that those who can be exploited are not exploited by God's people. And, and I just think that as, as I read this, it, it, it says, uh, over and over again, it says, care for the animals that are in your care. Take good care of the animals in your care. Plant the earth well. Take good care of the earth. Uh, actually, I think this kind of whole idea of the year of Jubilee, where you allow things to rest a year, is powerful. Because you're saying, I'm not going to exploit the earth to draw everything out of it I can. I'm actually going to, I'm going to be a good steward of the things that God gave. And so therefore, I'm going to enrich the world, both the, the, the physical world that we live in, the natural world and the physical world, and the humanity around us. I'm going to enrich them with the presence of God rather than exploit them. So I do think that caring for the earth... Now, not in the environmentalist way. I'm not a tree-hugging environmentalist. Don't worry. But I think that we are charged, according to these passages, with caring for the earth in such a way that honors the person of God. And so we, we need to do that. So the presence of God is in his commandments. What God wants his people to see through these commandments is, I am there, and when you trace those back, I'm behind them, and something about me is in every piece of this. And then you have this long, uh, uh, actually this culminates, and I want to just read this because it does culminate in chapter 24, verse 8. It says, um, then Moses, well, verse 6 maybe, then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Then Moses took blood from the basin and splattered it over the people, declaring, Look, this blood confirms the, blood, confirms the covenant that the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. Now that's a messy business. It takes death to create blood. So he, Moses takes blood and splatters it over all the people. It's just a messy business. What does this remind every person of? What does this remind them of? What's just happened three months before when they splattered blood on the doorposts, the Passover. So blood sacrifice is required. And then he goes into this uh, long, detailed explanation about the tabernacle. And, and in this I see the presence of God is in his place. They're building something for God that is marvelous and beautiful. And I don't think that this means our church houses should be works of art. Although I think that it shows us that God cares deeply about beauty. God cares deeply about beauty. Gold. He wouldn't have had to. 
This thing is beautiful. This thing shines. This thing is glorious. He cares deeply about beauty. And, and, and it's supposed to be, when they build this tabernacle, it's supposed to be right in the middle of all the people. They actually set out the camping order around it. It is in the middle. It centers the people. This tabernacle where the place of where God dwells is supposed to be right in the middle of these people. And it, it, it's, it represents the fact that, that these people are centered on something bigger than themselves, bigger than their bloodlines. They're centered on the presence of God. And in, actually in Hebrews it says that when Moses was given the instructions, it says, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And they picked the best craftsmen from a million men, uh, 600,000 men, although 3,000 of them are already dead by now, but they picked the best craftsmen to, to build this stuff. They have contests to see who is the best, and they recognize the best and they, because they want it done beautifully. This, this, is the, this is their centering place. The presence of God. In the New Testament, it says, we have this treasure in our own vessels. No longer is it in these faulty, broken, uh, physical tents. It is now in the tent of humanity. And so, when you think about the tabernacle, when you think about how the work that God put into creating the tabernacle, that's you. That's you. You are the tabernacle of God. The dwelling place of God on earth is in Reuben. It's in Dorothy. It's in Chris. It's in Etta. It's in us. So you think about the principles that God, God had put in place here. Beauty. Centeredness. Holiness. Clean. You think about your own lives. Do I represent that? To people. So the presence of God in the commandments, the person, as we see the person of God, and then the presence of God in his place, his tabernacle, and then the presence of God in his covenant. And this idea keeps coming back. This idea of covenant keeps coming back. At the very tail end of the passage today, uh, in chapter, get the right, end of chapter 31, verse 18. Please turn there because this kind of brings it all together. When the Lord finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, written by the finger of God. Now, one thing we want to just back up and look at is this is a miraculous place for these people. And by the way, Moses isn't alone in experiencing the glory of the Lord. So at, at a certain point, Moses is given these series of commandments. Then he comes back down and he gives them to the people. Then he and Aaron and Joshua and a couple other guys, along with 70 elders of Israel, go up into the mountain. Chapter 24. And they, have a, they sit down at a meal with God. It is the most amazing piece of Scripture. 
I'd never noticed it in my lifetime until I read this. And I went back to my other Bibles and just made sure it was there. Because I've read through this before. But uh, it, it is there. Let me read it to you. It's in chapter 24. Then Moses, uh, verse, I think, 9. Yes. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazula, as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. Think about this. These are, the, these are the leaders of your people. And they are sitting in the presence of God. They're having a covenant meal with God. In, in a place, and it, it appears that they were sitting in the sky. The, the, the place under God was like the sky and they're sitting on that. And, and God is eating this covenant meal. He's saying, you're my people. I care about you. I've, I've given everything to you. And, and, and this is what God wants with us. This is not limited to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. This is for us today. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3, when Paul wants to convince the people, he, he wants to convince them that this kind of covenant relationship that God has wanted throughout all the years, he says, how can this covenant that was written in stone and now it's written in the flesh of your human hearts See, the people of Israel were saved in the same way that we are saved. They're saved by looking forward to a Messiah who would come. We're saved at looking back at the Messiah. But, but with God, there is no time. So they all have to have the same kind of faith that we do, that there's something bigger than themselves in the world. And that following God will ultimately culminate in something much bigger than we can even realize ourselves. So they're, they're saved the same way. But in the middle of this passage, in, in the commands, there's a one line. And in, that line says, he, he's saying, I want your money, I want some of your tithes. When you give rest, work six days, rest seven, work the land six years, rest at the seventh. And then there's one line. It says, you must give me your firstborn sons. Whoa, 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 whoa. You must give me your firstborn sons. Think about that. Your firstborn child. Would you be willing to give it up? What about Marvin, Dorothy, and Narita and I who don't have any? Or Etta? It's a bigger issue here. The principle is, are you willing to give me your best? The thing that you care about the most the thing that you love the most, it points every person of Israel back to Abraham on the Mount Moriah giving up Isaac. And it points every person there forward when God would give his only son. In a powerful move that has shaped the world for all of history, when he would in his covenant relationship with you and I give up his most important possession, his son. So the covenant is written in blood, in the blood of Jesus for you and I. God is present. God's looking 
forward to the day. He's not bound by time, but he's, he's helping them look forward to a day when he reckons with giving his only son, and he does it. So the challenge for us today and this week is nothing that you have is as valuable as your firstborn. So can you give up the smaller things? Can you give up the things that you're wrestling with? So, because he did. And he leads us in that. So God is present in his commandments. God is present in his place, the tabernacle, us. And God is present in his covenant. God is so present in his covenant that it's written in his blood on our hearts. Please stand with me. Lord, as we wrestle, actually, I want to say one more thing before I pray. This is a powerful moment in the life of Israel. A week and a half later, these same elders who sat with God at the covenant meal would build two golden calves. And they'd say, look at who led us out of Israel. And in our, in our uh, rational minds, we can't seem to figure that out. But how often do we do that? We have these kind of burning, souls on fire moments with God. We go right back to saying, but will he deliver us? Will he lead us? And so we're not much different than they are. The constant reminders of who God is and how much he's paid for us are what we need. Now let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we wrestle with our own brokenness, as we wrestle with the golden calves that we've built that say, this might deliver us. This might be what it takes for me to feel fulfillment. This might be what it means for me to do, to be able to be alive. I pray that you would remind us of this passage, these moments. And I pray, God, that as we read your commandments and think about what's the point of these, we would look beyond them and see your presence. And think about the tabernacle, and we think about ourselves, and then we think about your covenant with us. In the name of Jesus Christ, your only Son, amen. You are dismissed.